All right, we're in the green room. We're talking about you know, yoga techniques and uh, what works. Actually, no, just kidding. All right, we're going to do some quick introductions. We've got some fun guests, uh, and we're going to go in reverse order. We're going to start with Dion, and we're going to go to Leah, and of course, Mike, uh, and of course, I'm Ray Wong. I'm the, one of the co-hosts and co-founders. You are on episode 200. This is the green room, and so we're going to have a little fun conversation. Vala, I'll turn it off to you. Hi, everyone. Vala Anshar from Boston. Episode 200. We've done 612 interviews. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. All right, so we'll start with Dion. Dion, where are you calling in from, and what are you going to talk about today? Uh, well, I'm uh, calling in from just outside Washington, D.C., uh, in, near Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, I'll be talking about uh, post-pandemic uh, CIO issues, uh, returning to work, low-code uh, digital transformation, lots of, of, of hot new trends we have to deal with uh, in our times of change. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, and Leah, where are you, and what are you talking about today? And congratulations for being a BT150 winner. So. Thanks, Ray. Um, I am calling in from outside New York on in Hastings on Hudson. I'm the Chief Enterprise Officer at Coursera, and I am going to be talking about the future of education and why it's so important that we all invest in our skills. Wonderful. And we've got Mike. Uh, Mike, where are you calling in from, and what will you be talking about? Calling from uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, um, from my basement, and uh, We'll be talking about whatever it is that uh, that you guys want to talk about. I think probably the importance of finding common ground. Uh, I'm a, a politician. Hopefully we won't get into any partisan politics uh, on this show. And I know from my first conversation with Vala, where we had, I think, about 15 minutes scheduled and talked for an hour and a half, that we should have a great conversation. Thank you, Mike. Oh, this will be wonderful. All right, we're going to go live. So I'm going to do the countdown. Five, four, and um, we're going to take everyone off. Uh, I will do that. So actually, I'll let I'll leave that five, four, three, two, and one. We are good. Uh, I think we're in place. All right, Val, all yours. All right. Hello. Welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO of a Silicon Valley-based consultancy firm, uh, Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, uh, one of my favorite books to read. Uh, in my opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWAMG0. This morning I saw him on Fox News talking about stock performance of some of the biggest tech companies in the world. That was an awesome segment. Uh, welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Vala Ashar, one of the top follows to follow. If you're on Twitter, CIO, CEO, CMOs, and executives all listen to him for inspirational advice leadership and of course what's happening hot in tech and of course if you're in canada you see him on business tv and of course if you are, follow him on keynotes at salesforce and other places he's one of the top keynote speakers in the world um so but it's not about us we always have interesting guests and this is episode number 200 so who do we have to kick it off Ray, we can't have a better lineup, especially our first guest for episode 200. Mike Lake is Canadian member of Parliament for Edmonton. With us going, and he's been uh, a member of the Parliament since 2006. So one of the longest running a podcasts in the enterprise, bringing one of the longest uh, uh, member of the Parliament to our show. Mike uh, has served as Parliamentary Secretary, Minister of Industry. He was sworn to the Queen's Privy Council and was asked by the former Prime Minister Stephen Harper to serve on the Cabinet Committee tasked with efforts to balance the federal budget. In, last year, in 2019, October of 19, 
Mike was reelected to a fifth term, receiving the highest vote total of all candidates from all parties across all of Canada. So really popular, incredible uh, politician. Mark, uh, Mike uh, currently served as the Shadow Minister of International Development. Prior to entering federal policies, Mike worked for a decade with the Edmonton Oilers, uh, who are, you know, playoff-bound Edmonton Oilers. Uh, Mike and his family have been active supporters of autism organizations, families with individuals across the country, across the world, while sharing their own story of life with Jaden, Mike's 24-year-old son, who has autism, and we're going to learn about Jaden and his incredible journey. Mike is a great follow on Twitter. This is how we connect it. So I highly encourage you to follow an amazing, generous thought leader at Mike Lake MP. Welcome, Mike, to Disrupt TV. Uh, it's uh, what a pleasure to be here. And I have to say, first of all, it's an honor to be here on your 200th episode. That's uh, that's pretty special. And uh, and then to to hear the introduction and see Vala, the uh, Canadian flag and the Alberta flag pop up. Uh, um alternating there that is uh that's fantastic so a nice little surprise a very warm welcome and it's uh it's so good to be here thank you sir hey thank you thank you so much for being on the show and and you know one of the most interesting topics we've had right now is really just divide and partisanship and you know not finding you know common ground how do we get out of that how do we start moving beyond partisan politics talk about issues without bringing politics because i feel like it's everywhere it's almost like people want to insert name your favorite politician, name your least favorite politician into every conversation. And it doesn't seem like it's being very productive. And, and you've been advocating, talking about how to find that following common ground. Um, what do you think are suggestions to help us get there and get less emotional about conversations and be able to have like, you know, civil discourse, like the way it was meant to be? Well, I mean, I think first, you know, you think about social media and you think about the the um, echo chamber that we find ourselves in from time to time. And, uh, you know, we tend to follow people who think similarly to the way that we think. Uh, and then our points of view are, are, are reinforced. The people that we follow tend to follow us back. And so when we post something that is particular point, particularly pointed or partisan, uh, we might get a lot of retweets or shares or those kind of things. Um, so I think part of that is to sort of broaden the base of who we're following and who we're connecting with. I also, you know, challenge people to think even in their political interests. So I'm a, I'm a conservative member of parliament from Canada, which sort of puts me in, in, in your world down there, probably somewhere between the Republicans and, and Democrats traditionally. Um, although your, your politics is a little bit different uh, these days, maybe over the last few years than, uh, than what it might have been traditionally. So it's hard to sort of peg that down exactly where I would fit. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, when I'm talking to conservatives in Canada, one of the pieces of advice I give is communicate in ways that actually win people to our positions. And I would say that for almost anybody. Right now, we seem to communicate and think that we're getting somewhere when we get a thousand retweets or a thousand shares of what we're, we're saying. But if those thousand retweets are only coming from people who would vote for our party or vote for the party we support, we're not actually getting where anywhere in terms of the political dis discourse. So it's actually in your political interest to communicate in ways that win people over. So number one, be respectful. You can be firm. You can uh, articulately, um, you know, post something uh, that that uh, um, is is forceful in nature that advocates for some sorts of sort of change, but isn't calling people names and isn't pushing people away. So that would be one thing that I would say. Um, another thing I would say is listen to people who 
don't believe every single thing the same way that you believe it. Um, some of my, you know, best aha moments come actually maybe not even in, in the, in the, you know, right in the midst of a conversation that I'm having, but in the reflection that comes from that conversation with somebody who maybe views things a little bit differently than me. And so I try in my world to surround myself with people who come from different points of view, who can have a respectful discussion. And when I walk away and, and really have something to think about when I'm walking away. It's, uh, you know, I wonder, you know, how someone can serve for 14 years in the parliament and then, you know, in the last election, win in a landslide. Uh, and uh, I've only known you since this year. and We met on digital channels, social Twitter, and immediately there was a sense of um, empathy, uh, trust, generosity. Um, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, you invited me to have a digital social hour with your network of friends. And, uh, you know, I, I was honored for the invitation. I, I, I invite you for a very casual social uh, get together. In fact, it was last week after Disrupt TV. And you, you have, you know, a gentleman who says, I'm, a good, I'm good friends with Rihanna uh, or uh, a, a, an entrepreneur CEO and his company is serving over 2 million vulnerable children around the globe with the work that they're doing. An incredible artist was the largest mural in all of Canada extraordinary people that you introduced me to and you did that out of just kindness so you're a connector you you welcome opposite points of view because you have a beginner's mindset that's my understanding of how you operate can you just talk about what motivates you to connect people even when they come from you know disparate backgrounds where you know there isn't maybe a common uh intersection in terms of the industry and the work that they do but I left that meeting last week so enriched and so inspired because of the extraordinary people that you had invited to this casual get together. So what motivates you to be a connector and appreciate different people's point of view and, and do what you do? You know what, it's, it's, uh, it's about sort of remembering that our labels are constructs. So we get so tied up in our labels, conservative, liberal in Canada, conservative, liberal, NDP, Bloc Québécois, Green. We have we have these party labels. Um, you know, we 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 get so caught up in those that we forget that those are just constructs. That we're human beings before we're a member of a particular political party. Now, they're helpful labels in the sense that they help people make decisions at election time, but they're not the be all and end all. They're not the reason that we do what we do. And so it's kind of remembering. Why is it that I'm doing what I'm doing in the first place? And I have, uh, I'll give you a little bit of my past that's kind of interesting in the sense that I, back when I first voted, I voted NDP when I was 19. Uh, NDP in Canada is our socialist party. It's mm -hmm. our furthest left party. And when I was 19, I voted NDP. I've been a conservative every election since then. And my views didn't change on what I thought was important. It's the how we get there that changed, I think. And so remembering why we do what we do. And so what I like to do is bring people together who have a similar why. And sometimes those those people who are motivated by the same things, they may not vote for my party. Um, they may not even live in my country, um, mm -hmm. but they, they're motivated by similar, similar um, you know, outcomes that they're looking for. And by bringing them together and sharing ideas, um, even during our Zoom happy hours where there's not really an agenda. It's really about kind of bringing people together and having a conversation. Um, people with similar 
views of the world in terms of what they want to accomplish are able to have conversations and connect and, and hopefully move forward in, in meaningful ways with real impact for people, which is really what it's all about is having impact for people when they need it. Because we all need help at some point in our lives. And we, we all hope that there's someone there that sees that when we need it and meets us in our time of need. That's awesome. Ray would, you, Ray, you would love it. I met other parliament members. I mean, it was just an extraordinary experience. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I think it's probably a little bit more collegial in Canada than where we are in the U.S. at the moment. So, uh, not, yeah, but, no, not, not always, Ray. Not always. Uh, I think we we sometimes start to go down, not even sometimes start to go down the road that, that you're going down. It's a very similar political discourse, and it's hard for a competitive person. I come from a sports background. It's hard sometimes not to be drawn in that and sometimes i am drawn into it and sometimes i say something or i post something that i go man that was i wish i would have given it more thought but i've learned over time if, if people follow me on twitter go onto my twitter page um you're going to see that i you know i post about autism international development the things i care about i retweet vala a lot and uh and then uh but then i also post, safe retweet. i also <laughs> post political things and some of the people who follow me for the work I do on autism international development might not love some of what I post politically, but I'm always trying to keep the audience in mind. And I, one of the things I've learned is take a look at your post, take a few breaths before you post it. Yeah, you know, if you have any question at all, ask somebody before you post it. No, it's a it's a great point. I, I think I probably delete about a third of the one things I want to post. <laughs> so it's a little bit of restraint these days. But you know, we're in the middle of this pandemic, and you know, different countries have taken different approaches, and we've all learned different things. Uh, what have you learned in the last four months about yourself uh, and about your friends around you, your family, and 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 your constituents? Yeah. Well, okay. First of all, I've learned a lot about uh, um, technology. Um, and, uh, and you know, Zoom, I, I've learned a lot about Zoom and I've spent a lot of time right here in this room because this is, I, um, I started out uh, March 11th was a Wednesday and I'll just share that on March 11th on Wednesday night, that was the night that the NBA shut down and uh, Tom Hanks announced that he had COVID and everybody kind of woke up to uh, um, a, a kind of, a, or not woke up, it was kind of in the evening, but everybody kind of became aware of, of this new world we were in. And that night, I was co-hosting an event with a liberal member of parliament, uh, with David Beasley from the World Food Program. And so we left that event, went on social media and saw that the world had changed. And fast forward, the next day I flew home to Edmonton, uh, got some groceries. And on March 13th, I uh, made a decision, you know what, because I'd been spending some time with some international development stakeholders to stay home and stay home for a little while. A week later, I found out that both David Beasley the head of the World Food Program, and Kamal Kara, the Liberal Member of Parliament that co-hosted the event with me, tested positive for COVID. Oh, wow. And uh, and I, we have pictures, the three of us standing together and, and everything else, shook hands with David and, uh, you know, Kamal's a good friend of mine, different party, but we're, we're good friends. And, and uh, thankfully, they both recovered. Uh, I tested negative subsequently, um, but I stayed pretty much in isolation for two months. And you... You know, you you do learn to adapt, and there are a lot of challenges. And uh, you know, you learn how hard you can work when you're in a position like we are. You learn how privileged we are. We were in that situation to be in a position where we could do something because I think so many people felt helpless, like there was really nothing that they could do. And on the flip side, me and and my colleagues from all parties and my staff, all of our staffs were just in this situation where we could actually help and. 
you know, you could you could work 24-7 and not help everybody that needed help. So um, it, it just a, a really unique circumstance where you also hopefully come together. And I think we've kind of learned some things about how we can come together uh, with meaningful impact through, you know, through the power of technology, but combining that technology with, a you know, a human spirit and a generosity. Speaking of coming together and appreciating each other and understanding that there may be new normals uh, as we get back to a safe reopening of economy and businesses, redefining normal for you has been a main topic and passion uh, with Life with Jaden, your 24-year-old son, um, and how expecting more from those with autism, uh, what inclusion looks like. I remember the first time I saw the video of you and Jaden, which has like millions of views, what a magical, incredible moment. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, um, the message that you try to convey to the world in terms of acceptance, inclusiveness, and expecting more from individuals that may be a, a bit different from you? Yeah, for sure. You know, and I was going to share that video. And then with my tech issues at the beginning, I uh, just didn't get a chance to set it up. But you know what, Vala, what I'm going to do, it's, it, there's a video of us 35 seconds long. I'll share it on Twitter afterwards. So within the first, uh, probably within the first hour after the after the broadcast, and uh, and then you can share it with with viewers. Um, but uh, no, I'll, I'll point out in this room, it's kind of interesting. So up here, you can see this this drawing back here. So my son's twenty four, and he sees the world in a a, li a little bit of a different way. He's nonverbal in some ways. He's kind of like a three or four year old, but in other ways, um, you know, he's absolutely incredible. You watch him like do a puzzle or a word search or something like that. And he's faster than you or I would be doing doing many of those things. But that that picture, we had the chance to go to the Global Disability Summit in London, uh, I guess it was uh, a couple of years ago now. And uh, he got invited to go as a youth delegate. So it was pretty cool for me because oftentimes I'm a member of parliament, I go to these events and I'm, it's it might me and my role as a member of parliament. I got to go as Jaden's dad to that event. And Jaden <laughs> was the, the, the actual delegate to the, to the uh, Global Disability Summit. And uh, we came back from London and that's Jaden's rendition uh, of, uh, of Windsor Castle. We had a chance to go to Windsor Castle. Wow. And, uh, and uh, uh, my girlfriend, Julie, had, had Jaden draw Windsor Castle uh, one day when we were back. And so, um, and I think at the top there, he has uh, Windsor Castle written and uh, uh, totally remembers that Jaden has an amazing visual memory. And so loves to go through pictures and point out all these places he's been. But the point is quickly to, to the point you ask, you know, Jaden has, you know, when you see him at first glance, you you, you see uh, a person, a 24-year-old, a young man that has significant challenges. But when you get to know him and you start to see some of the things he's good at, the way he handles the, the concrete world um, in terms of those things I talked about, puzzles and word searches and just uh, he loves he loves doing Lego, right, and building things yeah. on Lego. And you start to see some opportunities where Jaden might be able to contribute those skills so inclusion is super important but we i'm a big fan of this concept that we need to move from inclusion and use that as a stepping stone to see where people like Jaden can contribute because i think as a society we're so much better uh when we're when we're having everybody contribute to the fullness of their ability mike i saw Jaden uh, working at the library and the way he was putting the books back and labeling he clearly has like photographic memory and ability to really understand. I mean, 
faster than you and I could ever imagine is what I saw in the video. Absolutely. It's incredible, incredible. Our, our, and, and, and there's a lot of these videos are on my Facebook page, which is actually you can find through the same same uh, tag, tagging. Um, and if you click on the videos tab, skip all the political stuff. You know, that's, that's the world I live in and it's really important. And I, I, it's not lost on me that I don't get to do or we don't get to do the things we get to do unless my constituents, um, you know, feel strongly about the way I serve them. Um, but with the platform, we also do these other things. And that video you talk about, if someone clicks on the videos tab, you're gonna find a bunch of things that are part of our presentation, including that CTV national news story, yeah. uh, Jane working in the school library. And I'll tell you, when he's working in the library, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, now he's not anymore, because he's older, but he would run around with his pile of books that he pre-sorted, put in order, putting them away way faster than we would put them away. But he would see a book as he's walking by in the wrong place and he'd grab it and oh. without skipping a beat, put it where it belongs when he walked by where it belonged. It was absolutely oh. amazing. But oh. kudos to his school for including him in other areas so that they could see this incredible skill set and and um and then uh, and then use it in a way that was meaningful to both Jaden and to the school. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. You know, you're right. We really should put these platforms we have to create positive impact and, and really, you know, thank you for being able to do that. Uh, talking about other platforms here, uh, you work for the Oilers. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what is tomorrow at 12 p.m.? What are you guys up to? <laughs> it's, a, it's a big it's a big time uh, for, for our city. We're one of the bubble cities. So there's two NHL bubble cities, Toronto and Edmonton. In fact, the semifinals and finals will uh, be here. I would say that we have, I think, the two best players in the world playing in Edmonton. We have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl playing in Edmonton. And, uh, um, of course, we we have a, a strong history with Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messi and others who, uh, you know, Grant Fuhrer and Paul Coffey and and uh, others who were won five Stanley Cups here uh, in the 80s. But we haven't won a Stanley Cup since 1990. Um, we've had a few good runs, but uh, we haven't quite got there. And I think that there's a real feeling in the city that we have a shot. And that all starts tomorrow. And oh, look at that. We got an orders logo up there. I want to do I want to do all of my videos. <laughs> and, uh, just, I just uh, lost all my Bruins fans. I lost all my Bruins fans in Boston. But that's so great. that's great. We got a House of Commons logo I see up there as well from our Canadian House of Commons. So, uh, but tomorrow is a big day for uh, for for our city um, and for many cities actually across North America for hockey fans across North America. And uh, I think there's a lot of optimism. And you know what? It's uh, it's it's just what we need right now. Yeah, definitely. You know, I was just chatting with my friend, uh, Jonathan Becker, who's the uh, president of the Sharks. And uh, unfortunately, we're not one of those. <laughs> so, but anyways, so, hey, we are here with Mike Lake, Canadian member of Parliament of Edmonton. And you can follow him on Twitter, Mike Lake MP. Follow his good works uh, as he uses platform for good. Learn more about autism, learn more about some common ground. And of course, thank you so much for sharing your insights and being on episode 200 with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for including me. Uh, very much appreciate it and look forward to the rest of the show. Thank you, Mike. You're terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. What, a, what an inspiring uh, individual. Uh, and again, I've had the privilege of meeting Mike this year and uh, I'm, I'm continued to be inspired by his work. Speaking of inspiration, speaking of education, awesome guests for our 200th episode. We welcome Leah Belsky, Chief Enterprise Officer at Coursera. Coursera was founded by Daffy Kohler and Andrew Nick, another great follow. I love following Andrew on Twitter. With a version of providing life-transforming learning 
experiences to everyone anywhere. Coursera, Coursera is now the leading online platform for higher education. We're 66, right, 66 million leaders, from, learners, learners from around the world come to learn skills of the future. When it comes to like machine learning and AI, I think Coursera is the number one platform in the world in terms of emerging advanced technologies. More than 200 of the world's top universities and industry educators partner with Coursera to offer courses in specialization certifications and degree programs. Prior to joining Coursera, Leah was senior executive at, uh, sorry, Caltona, uh, an Intel Capital funding video technology company. Leah led the company from 1 million to 50 million uh, in, in revenue. She began her career at the World Bank and National Institute of Health, uh, served on President Obama's Technology Policy Committee, and remains a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Leah also sits on the boards of Engine Advocacy and Public Knowledge, leading technology and startup policy organizations that promote freedom of expression, innovation, and access to knowledge. You can follow the company's work on Twitter at Coursera. Welcome, Leah, to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much, and congratulations on your 200th show. That's an accomplishment, 200 shows. Wow. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, it feels like it was yesterday, but it's been four years. Yeah. It's been four years. You know, but hey, more importantly, congratulations for being a BT150 winner. I mean, the BT150 is one of the top awards you can win in the industry. Uh, we actually go through a tough nomination process. Um, Dion Hinchcliffe leads that for us at Constellation. He'll be on in a little bit. But uh, thank you so much and congratulations to you. So absolutely, thank you. We at Coursera were super excited about that, and thank you. Yeah. Now, one of the things you've been doing, like my son loves you guys, and he takes a lot of classes <laughs> through you. And you know, one of the things that you're doing is you're, you're transforming how education works, how skills and competencies are being developed by individuals. I mean, you're you know all this remote well remote learning that's actually happening. I mean, you guys have been pioneering this for a long time. So you know, who else better to ask? What does higher education and what does back to school look like this fall and beyond? Like what, what's your view yeah. of what's going to happen? Well, let's separate back to school in this fall, which is something I think we're all guessing about from the future of higher education. I would say higher education, generally, it's gonna look a lot different from the way it looks now. What we're seeing right now is just a radical, radical digital transformation where tons and tons of people are moving to learn online. And our prediction is that Many schools moving forward are not going to return to returning, sorry, asking students to return to campus. So we imagine a world where, yes, there will be some students who go traditionally and sit on campus and sit on lectures, but overall, most people are going to be dialing in, in remotely. And even some of those students who do go to campuses, they're going to be dialing in remotely as well. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that online tends to be more accessible, it's more personalized, it's more efficient and it can be higher quality. And I think that's what people are starting to realize in this COVID moment. The other thing is that, you know, for many people, they don't have an option to pick up their families and leave their jobs and go to an institution of higher learning. It's just not realistic. And yet we are now living in a world where adults need to keep learning throughout their lives. And so we're really just taking down the walls of universities. And I think we're in a moment now where there's gonna be many more ways for people to learn and to continue learning throughout their lives. Absolutely, absolutely. Ray and I had the privilege to co-present at a conference a couple of years ago uh, with uh, Dr. Clay, uh, Professor Clay Christensen. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, when uh, uh, Professor Clay Christensen talked about future of education, you know, he had some, you know, uh, forecast that said potentially 50% of higher education could be bankrupt given the tra digital transformation that's happening, the importance of online courses. 
you know, he was talking about again massive online open courses and and the evolving role of you know learning and development for leaders. And now you have COVID. So can you talk about the accelerated transformation and sense of urgency as a result of COVID? And how can some industries outside of higher education that are struggling, like healthcare, retail, um, how can they use this opportunity and your platform to reskill their employees to drive business recovery? Sure. So lots of questions there. Let, let's start on the education front. So in this moment, and I'll step back. So we as Coursera, um, Mike described his moment when he really realized that COVID was coming. I was actually at a conference um, with digital learning leaders out in Utah, up on a mountain. And there was this moment I was sitting with our CEO when we realized that, oh my God, this is going to become a pandemic and take over the world. And we thought, you know, we're Coursera, we're educators. There are about 1.5 billion students who are now learning at home because their schools have been shut. What can we do? And so what we decided to do is actually make Coursera free. Hold on one second. My husband said hi. <laughs> I was hoping he would hey, welcome, welcome, welcome. He actually works at the World Economic Forum and is doing this stuff, but you shouldn't be standing in the corner. Anyway, <laughs> what we decided to do is we decided to make Coursera freely available to any campus all around the world um, that wanted to provide Coursera to their students during this time and shut down. Uh, we didn't know what would happen. And it just went, it was adopted like crazy. We had over 10,000 institutions around the world adopt this Coursera for Campus product and roll out Coursera campuses, sorry, Coursera courses in lieu of their on-campus courses. And these universities, you know, 40% of them were in Asia Pacific area, 40% of them in EMEA, countries like Kazakhstan, Iraq, Egypt, Bhutan, you know, universities all around the world. And what, what we realized is that for most institutions of higher learning, particularly in emerging markets, they don't have access to digital technologies right now. They have been bought learning management systems. Their students are learning online. And so this is a real opportunity for them to take a leap forward. Now, you know, you talked about Clay Christensen and many people predicting that institutions of higher learning are gonna go out of business. Well, that's possible. But what's happened in this moment is that many have realized they can change their business model. Yeah, they don't absolutely. need to just have all their faculty teaching online the way they would before. So instead, what some of these schools and emerging markets are doing is they're saying, let me take the best data science course in the world or the best psychology course in the world or the best wow. programming course in the world, and I'm going to provide that to my students. And I'm going to charge money, and they're going to be able to learn from top professors at Michigan and Duke. And that's radical because it means that these students can get top quality education, at a low cost and a way that can scale to millions. And I think that's where so many institutions are going to be saved and where so many students are going to get access to high quality learning. So, so Coursera is helping new business model innovation for these universities where they can potentially have incremental revenue by giving students access to the best and brightest around the world. So an open ecosystem where you get to choose where you want to learn uh, and, and have that orchestrated through a particular institution. That's amazing. That's, that's just awesome. They, awesome. they are the app store for higher education. <laughs> I you know, you I was thinking the that. ability to bring all that stuff together. 
right? Oh. I mean, Hunt Lambert, who was on our show as well, right? We talked about the 60 year curriculum, right? Harvard. And, and being Harvard. At, at Harvard, yeah. And, and being able to, you know, mix and match. And we've had, you know, people from other universities like, you know, Western Governors as well, WGU, talking yeah. about skills and competency based uh, approaches to get to that. Um, and, and this is actually happening. And so we're seeing a wider spread skills development uh kind of like ecosystem emerged you want to talk a little bit more about how universities and companies and governments are yeah. starting to create these absolutely so there's a couple of things that are interesting this innovation is actually happening within the universities so you know the content on our platform comes from top companies who are truly aware of what the emerging skills are that needed in the world as well as universities and so you have people like james devaney from university of michigan who is now producing content for the rest of the education ecosystem. It's a very different story of disruption than you know, a tech startup starting from scratch and just disrupting the whole industry. Um, but if we step back, you know, Coursera actually brings together an ecosystem of companies that purchase the Coursera product and use that to train their employees. During this pandemic, it's been you know, super interesting. So I'm a, a leader of a business and I can't count the number of times I've been asked by investors or by our board, what's gonna happen? You run a learning business and, it's, and we're headed towards a recession. Yeah, yeah. If that recession is caused by COVID and everyone goes home and everyone uses more technology, all of a sudden what the companies are doing are re is realizing we need to invest in tech, we need to invest in schools. So all the different, sorry, we need to invest in skills, schools. So it's been fascinating on the, on the company side. You know, we've had major companies like AT&T, Novartis, Sanofi. You know, we saw in the news today that Sanofi was just granted a lot of money for their vaccine project. But these companies are realizing they need to invest in technology. They need to invest in data. And they need to do so in order to step ahead, in order to compete, in order to retain their employees, in order to retain their talent. Um, so we're seeing this general sort of deep investment and in skilling happening from corporate leaders. We're seeing universities rethink the way they want to educate. And then of course, you know, Coursera is ultimately a consumer platform and we've seen a 500x rise. Sorry, the overall traffic on the site has grown by 500%. So there's just like huge losses of people stuck at home deciding they're going to invest time in learning. That's amazing. Great. By the way, we need to like put a Coursera snippet in Disruptive TV every week so we can see a 500x growth. <laughs> you maybe have like Mike tweet you. I think that seems like a better route. But. Yeah, yeah, no, we're definitely. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. So other question people must be coming to you and Coursera is like, what are the skills that are critical for yeah. jobs of the future? And of course, you have metrics and you have businesses that are, you know, building your content. So. You have a unique uh, foresight in terms of uh, the skills that uh, businesses are looking for and are in demand. So can you share with us advice yeah. in terms of our watchers, what skills they should be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually recently launched a report called the Global Skills Index. And what we do is we actually look at the traffic across our entire site and we can see what people are learning and how they're performing. And so we, we recently launched the latest version of this report and you find a couple things one is that even during this pandemic period the top skills where people are investing are business technology and data stands out those three domains stand out you know far among the others the other big finding of the report was actually that in industries where you have more highly skilled talent these industries are actually seeing higher stock returns and less disruption from covid so it's just a huge reinforcement for the need to invest in those areas. You know, what's interesting on the consumer side as well, 
the number one course that's been most popular during this period is actually a course called the Science of Well-Being. Um, so this is of course about wow. the biology of how we have time to think. Yeah, about we have that, time yes. to think about our well-being, think about how to cope. Um, we have another great course about learning how to learn. So you know, there are a lot of soft skills courses as well, connected to emotional well-being, connected to leadership and influence. But when it comes to hard skills, it's really about business tech and data. Business tech and data makes sense. Makes total sense. Now, are there shifts that you're seeing with L&D leaders in terms of how they're thinking about how to access Coursera, be part of that broader ecosystem, or are people yeah. still intent on building their own courses and filling in their own you know, LMS? <laughs> I mean, what's, what's happening in that market? Statement. Yeah, look, I think a lot of, there's two <laughs> things that are changing with L&D leaders. One, we're seeing a huge focus on data. Um, companies across the board. We recently launched a product called the Data Science Academy, and people are wanting to build data literacy across their organizations. So whether you're a marketer or whether you're in finance or whether you're in communications, anyone in this day and age needs to be able to read and interpret data. Um, so that's a big focus that we're seeing across the board. I think the other thing we're seeing is that, you know, in the same way that I think this was our moment at Coursera to stand up and see what we could do, the L&D community is starting to stand up. And so we're seeing leaders like um, the chief learning officer at Novartis, for example, he actually not only did he go global with his learning program across the company, but he made his learning program available to any friends and family of the company. Wow. It's, you know, we're seeing other companies giving out scholarships to their communities. So I think, you know, if this is a moment where people and particularly corporate leaders in learning are realizing that learning matters, it matters both for economic opportunity, it matters for well-being. And so they're seeing what they can do to actually make learning available to their broader communities and to the people that companies are impacting. That's amazing. You know, you mentioned your husband works or uh, partners and collaborates with World Economic Forum. World Economic Forum last year uh, said that only 15% of companies are ready for fourth industrial revolution, the blending of the physical and digital yeah. world and investing in technology and creating a data-driven culture. When I listen to your story, two things are clear. Values create value. Clearly, Coursera, Coursera values community and education and makes it accessible, affordable, and enriching. And you also remind me business is the greatest platform for change. Giving away your content for free, enabling businesses to really advance their stakeholders while we're going through a, you know, a health crisis, an economic crisis, a race crisis, you know, a climate crisis. This is, you know, it's just, we need companies like Coursera to demonstrate generosity and really ensure that we can get through this even stronger and better. So can you give me advice you give to CEOs and business leaders who come to you personally as sponsor, mentor, you serve on board of directors. Uh, what, what advice do you have to business leaders in terms of really embracing education and really creating a culture where perhaps the most important skill in the 21st century would be to stay teachable. It's yeah. lifelong journey. It's not just get your master's PhD and you're ready to get it done. How, what advice do you have for business leaders? I think the key advice for business leaders is the same way we all grew up figuring out how do you be a good manager, how do you roll good business strategies. Every business leader needs to have a learning strategy. They need to have a strategy for how they're going to develop their people, develop a culture where people are excited to learn, excited to invest in themselves, and literally a strategy and a process where they identify what are the jobs in the future in my company, how am I going to fill those jobs, how am I going to train my existing people up. And so learning and learning strategy is now you know, a key part of the CEO canon. PwC actually does survey, I think two years ago now, 
where learning and fear about the lack of talent in workforce was a top concern of CEOs. And that's yeah. because so many business leaders, you know, we weren't, you know, so many business leaders were not raised to think of HR and talent strategy as a central pillar of, of leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing I would say was, is it's just so important to think really, really big and have processes in your company that allow people to think big and to take risks and then to figure out how to execute on those, those opportunities. You know, it wasn't an easy thing to say, you know, I run a very, very large sales force and to go to them and say, guess what, guys, everything you're selling, we're going to give it for free for the next six months. <laughs> And you know, trust me, you're going to generate pipeline and it's the right thing to do. And, you know, we didn't know. But when you make an announcement like this, that's what you, you have to yeah. do. And yeah. to be able to have a culture where people will actually, you know, trust you and, and go with you. And but also a team around you that will say, OK, let's let's take the risk and let's and let's go for it. And you know, there's only a few moments in a career and a few moments in life where you have an opportunity like this to really stand up and do something impactful and i think it's you know it takes a certain amount of training to figure out what those moments are congratulations for being a trailblazer that's just that's awesome <laughs> really really congrats yeah and, and for being part of the bt150 i mean this, the courses are just amazing the wide range i mean we saw you know IT automation with python right science of well-being right machine learning have you ever taken a course right, right? Yeah. have you taken a course yeah. um, i have i have yes so uh, the one on my next list is social norms and social change. So someone told me to take that class. I haven't seen that yet. So I've heard it's one of the, the top courses, but that and deep learning. So I really don't know what deep learning is. That's not true. That's not true. You don't. <laughs> so, no, this is great. We are here with our BT150, one of our winners this year, uh, Leah Belsky, Chief Enterprise Officer at Coursera. You can follow the company handle at Coursera, you know, check out the classes, hear a little bit more from what's going on, and of course, continue that lifelong learning journey. So thanks a lot for being on the show, and uh, we'll see you in the green room afterwards. Thank you very much. Terrific. Uh, wow. That, just uh, an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing guest. And this is our cleanup hitter spot. For those of you who know, you know, baseball's back. This is where we bring, you know, our big heavy hitter to get a grand slam <laughs> to end our 200th episode. No, no pressure, Dion. Dion Hinchcliffe okay. is the uh, Vice President Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Dion is an internationally recognized business strategist, best-selling author, enterprise architect, industry analyst, and noted keynote speaker. Diane is widely recognized as one of the most influential figures in digital strategy, future of work, and enterprise IT. I always see him at top of lists of most influential for CIOs, for digital transformation. He's an industry expert in topics of digital transformation, digital workplace, social collaboration, API strategies, and CIO issues, and much more. Diane co-authored Web2R Architectures for O'Reilly, as well as a bestseller, Social Business by Design really time-tested principles that apply even more today than when he wrote the book. Maybe more ever than ever. More ever, more ever, honestly, honestly. More uh, ever. Uh, <laughs> it, it, kudos to you, because when you read the book, you realize, my God, you had a vision that really is is, is more applicable today than maybe ever before. Industry analytics firm Analytica just ranked down as number one, number two influencer globally on the subject of digital tra transformation. Uh, Diane has keynoted and spoke uh, hundreds uh, of uh, at hundreds of leading industries around the world, and I'm sure he's even doing it more now virtually. He's one of the best follows on Twitter. I mean, you know, so often I'll end the bio by saying, 
please follow this person. One of the best follows on Twitter at D Hinchcliffe, D-H-I-N-C-H-C-L-I-F-F-E. Welcome back, Dion, to the Shrub TV. Yeah, thanks. Well, Bob, you always do the, the best introductions. Uh, that's very kind. Uh, <laughs> right back at both of you guys. Congrats on the, the 200th episode. Uh, I, I know what that takes. That is serious commitment. Uh, and you've done an, an amazing job bringing all these voices uh, out to the world. Thank you so much. It's our favorite part of the week, and it's because of people like yourself, Leah, and Mike, that really inspire us to do what we do. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, hey, we're going to go into some of your favorite topics, the ones that everyone's calling about. Uh, you're well, well known for, for folks that follow Dion on ZDNet, some of the most amazing graphics explaining the, the most best. complicated things. The best. The most simple things. <laughs> before, before people were like, oh, we're going to do these, yeah, you know, we can do some awesome graphics on, you know, go to Dion first. So the post-pandemic playbook, it's a hit for CIOs. Uh, people are looking at it. What's the summary? How are we doing? What's going to happen next? Yeah, well, right now the CIO and the CHRO are the busiest people in most organizations today. Uh, they're getting our technology, enabling the business and remote work, uh, and the CHRO is trying to figure out how do we keep the business running? Uh, how do we survive? Uh, and so I put together this post-pandemic playbook, easy to find on Google, uh, that highlights you know what are the big moving parts? What do we really have to worry about? And there's two tracks. <clears throat> One is simply to survive, right? We, we need to reinforce our businesses. We need to business continuity. We have to make things safe. Uh, we have to make our, our workers productive, and largely we've done that as long as the bottom hasn't fallen out of our business. Most organizations have made that transition, uh, <clears throat> but now we have to kind of rethink our businesses. That you know, everyone has to be in e-commerce now. Everyone has to, to be delivering their business digitally uh, if they if they have any hope of making it through uh, next year. Uh, and so we see businesses, large and small, medium size, all digitizing, trying to figure out things they really should have figured out a long time ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, now they didn't know that this emergency was going to happen. So we see a few things. Uh, our digital transformation plans are totally different and accelerated now. 70% of organizations have their DT budgets up uh, when the rest of their budgets are down, right? So 8% 8 down on average. And we still see that was 4% a couple months ago. And we still see that IT budgets are dropping when tech is how we're going to dig out of this. And so uh, we, we need a better, um, we, uh, we need better resiliency in our organizations. We saw how fragile everything was. So now is the start the time to start putting that resiliency in place. Uh, and, and in my playbook, I go through the steps that, that'll make that happen. But that first and foremost is making our workers strong, giving them the resources, making them safe. Uh, I was talking to one CIO. They have a proactive team that actually monitors all the workers digitally, uh, and they will send out mental health care, physical health care, uh, proactively to workers uh, to help them because they're afraid people are not going to ask for help uh, until it's too late, right? So, I mean, there's some really visionary things happening out there that, that, that make me really proud that, that IT is stepping up to the plate. But that's still the exception rather than the rule. So, anyway, it's an exciting uh, exciting time. But, uh, you know, read the playbook, uh, look at the pieces. But the, the, the biggest one is really giving the workers what they need to thrive and survive right now. Daniel, we had uh, Paul Doherty, uh, who leads about 273,000 technologists at Accenture. He's the group executive and chief oh, yeah. technology innovation officer. And he said he felt that it was maybe three to five years of acceleration in the last three to five months. We had Crawford El Prey, who was the president of IDC last week, and he felt that there's been massive acceleration of both digital and culture transformation since February of, of, of this year. You as a pioneer, I mean, you coined the term Enterprise 2.0 with Andrew McAfee when you talked about enterprise collaboration. And so you've been, you've had a track record of having incredible vision of what's to come, sometimes years before, you know, the technology was adopted. 
What are your thoughts about this post-pandemic era in terms of, like you said, e-commerce? Deloitte just published, I think, an article this week where they saw 10 years of e-commerce adoption in the U.S. in the last yep. five months, going from like 16% to maybe 30% adoption uh, in just this year. So e-commerce, contactless payments, uh, you know, we've seen uh, immersive technologies like AR, uh, VR, obviously machine learning and AI. The combinatorial effect, cloud, cloud first, yep. you can pivot to a work from home if you've got all these on-premise solutions that hold you back. Your thoughts about, you know, where we are today and as you do reopen safely, how quickly these CIOs need to drive transformation with the highest level urgency than ever before. Yeah, well, look here, uh, the realization of Enterprise 2.0 was that we built a lot of these digital tools to replicate how we used to work. So email was the kind of digitization of the memo, right? <laughs> right. Um, uh, and, and, and that's what we did. We didn't know how to apply to a digital technology to truly collaborate. How do we mass collaborate? How do we strategically work together and collaborate inside our organizations? How do we create networks uh, across organizations out there in the world and do this effectively? Open source was the first big clue that, hey, Right. We might be able to do incredible things by just working over the network and just letting anyone contribute, right? That was, that was the big lesson there. And, and we're still, most organizations have to learn that lesson. What if we just open it all up and let people who are passionate contribute, right? So Enterprise 2.0 was the realization that there's much, you know, we, we, should, we should move away from those old kind of paving the cow path constructs, right? Uh, and now we're all remote. Uh, if you're doing an employee experience strategy, it's remote first. It's hybrid right? You still have some workers probably in the office that need to be there and you have essential workers. But everyone else is remote and we have to design for that and and people aren't going back, right? Uh, yeah. Some are, some will. But, you know, the writing's on the wall that uh, we're now all, the future is distributed and so will employee experience uh, and so will the workplace be highly distributed going forward, period. So, um, and that is much more amenable to these more participative, more open models for communication and collaboration which all the data now shows that's the best way. Get, you know, build strong uh, networks and communities in digital environments, build, create your social capital. People should have been building up their followers and their networks and their connections since they were able to do so. And those uh, that did have, are, are actually, I noticed very clearly are, are, are thriving in, as we're all siloed in our homes. They're the ones that have these strong networks that they can fall back on uh, to find new jobs or to accelerate their existing work inside of organizations. Uh, we should have been doing this. And Enterprise 2.0 was all about that, these networks and open communities. Uh, and now we can learn from that. At least we we got fairly far down that road. The, the, the early adopters proved out that it would work. But now we got to get everyone else doing that because it's just a better way of working. Just a quick follow-up question. In this digital distributed construct, what does it mean for citizen development movement? What are your thoughts in terms of, is this going to accelerate this contribution, collaboration, community building? Yeah, there's never going to be enough developers for, to drive all the digital innovation, and 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 we and we've been seeking models for a long time uh, to, uh, to to democratize uh, you know digital innovation and low code, no code, citizen developer. Uh, that's the future. That we're never going to be able to digitally transform our whole organizations unless almost everyone can can play ball, right? Uh, and no code and low code make that happen. And now you know I've been using the latest generation of tools. They're ready for prime time. They're not perfect. They have a lot more to do for governance and management, long-term uh, you know, uh, business continuity, but you can do it now. And the, uh, the your power users, your knowledge workers can absolutely apply these tools today. Power apps from Microsoft. Uh, Integromat is one of my favorite. I, I've automated all kinds of parts of, uh, mm -hmm. of, of the work that I do. Um, and now we just got to get everyone the skills. Things like Coursera, what Leo was talking about, 
Yeah. These are new digital skills that we have to get to every single worker, get rid of Excel, which is the, the development tool everyone has now, and get to those. Uh, but before we get to to uh, to uh, far into this interview, I wanted to turn it back a little bit because this is a special episode, right? This is episode 200. Um, an enormous amount of work behind the scenes I know goes into this. Uh, um, what, what were your what are your favorite moments? What were the big uh, what are the great times that you had on this show that that if we really have to share with uh, the people watching right now? Wow! Wow! We're, we're turning it around on us. We, 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 we're getting flipped here. Uh. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you right now. I was just a, was just a moment. It was just a glance. It, it was on the screen for three seconds, but that's the power of Dion. One of the top CIOs in the world, one of the consistently ranked most influential CIOs in the world, Jay Farrow, just popped in to say hello. And it's those things, it's those micro moments where Ray and I have the privilege of, even if it's just for a few seconds, knowing that you know Anand is watching one of the top minds in retail in the world, working with the biggest companies in the world to transform, or Jay just saying hello. You know, it's these like little, yeah, Jay, you know, it's just that when I see that right away, I'm like, oh my God, he's one of the top CIOs in the world. Charlie, Chief Technology Officer for Connected Customer and Salesforce. So I don't know if Dion, I can say some amazing, uh, oh, one of your friend who watches the show all the time, to be able to point to any one moment, uh, there've been so many moments, but it's those micro moments for me that just says, oh, wow, what a privilege for Ray and I to be here. So sorry, Ray, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think the craziest moments, and I agree with Bala, right? Like, you know, it's just the the, the chance to share. I, I think that's that's been it. But there's some crazy moments, right? Like when we switched technology platforms or- Four we, times. <laughs> four times. In four years, <laughs> we've been on four different platforms. It keeps getting better too. I love this new, the new format. <laughs> so disrupting oh, yourself has to be part of the DNA if you're going to call your show Disrupt TV. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, like, like, like next week, we're going to do a joint show with Paul Greenberg and Brent Leary, and like they're the ones who turned on to this platform along with other folks here at Constellation, right? They switched platforms already. Like I'm kind of curious to what platform they switched. Amazing, you know? amazing. So it's it's stuff like that. But but we've had some fun interviews at World Economic Forum, like you know ca camping out. You know we were at the Wipro booth, and you know there people were dropping by, like random people were dropping by. We we're having like some interesting conversations, and you know and and then I think we went on the road. Remember that thing, like Sales Machine, or what was that? You know, in New York. Yeah, we interviewed Ariana Huffington and Seth Godin, Gary Vaynerchuk. And, uh, you know, I've been studying Tom Peters' work for decades. Uh, and Tom was, up, Tom was on our show about a month ago. And I think we were at 119,000 views of the show with Tom. And he's just like such energy, he's such passion. He's a legend. That's right. That's the right way. From Vint Cerf to former prime minister of Australia to Tom Peters, like to yourself, uh, you know, uh, Mike Lake, you know, I mean, you know, longest serving parliament member, you know, I don't even know, like, I, I keep telling Ray, I have such imposter syndrome, because I keep, like, asking, like, how did we get this guest on the show? Like, how did this happen? So anyway, it's, uh, thank you for bringing it up. I, I know you're using, we're using your, no, well, I mean, you this know, is why he's the number two influencer of CIOs. <laughs> he's a giver. He's a giver. That's right. Exactly. He's a, you know how hard it is to create those diagrams? You know, the human mind processes an image 60 times faster than text. Yes. Yeah, so, so when I see, I mean, the micro details you put into those illustrations where people get what you're saying, 
because of you know, sometimes I, I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I'm cheating. I'm not even reading the paragraph below it. I get it. I get yeah, it. Too. Yeah, that's what it's there for. <laughs> People learn different ways. But yeah, the highest bandwidth connection to the brain is through the eyes, right? I mean, you know, the, you know there's a multi megapixel continuous stream of information and tap into that. That's why multimodal learning is so important and why I always. I include a visual in what I do. So, and thank you. You're the best in the world. You're the best in the world doing yeah, that. There's no, no one I think one of your presentations at Enterprise Connect way, way back. I can't even remember what hotel it was. I just remember seeing that and then watching you at Dotchess Group with Peter and a whole bunch of other folks. So it's been wild. Hey, you know, one of the things that you do a lot is you're at this Tux CIO event every year. I think you speak there or you're part of this big event where everyone gets yep. together. Uh, and one of the big topics that people talk about is what, what do people need to do to get on the board? Or because these tech, a lot of companies' boards, they really just don't get technology and the impact on their policies, on their product development, on what happens in pricing, actually what happens in their ability to go to market. And so, I mean, what, what are folks doing? And, and I think we'll, we'll talk through that in some other questions. Yeah, well, first, you made a key point. Uh, boards, uh, the data shows year after year, boards are the least prepared to guide their technology, uh, their businesses through the, through the technology transformations they have to, have, uh, uh, to, to uh, carry out. Uh, and you need a qualified technology executive on the board. One, somebody who's done it before is not learning on the job. That's so important. That's why you have board members is people who have done it before. I uh, <laughs> get the, the benefit of the experience of the whole journey, right? So that's what's lacking on boards. And the CIO has been to that journey of, of digitizing so many parts of the business, has all the bumps and bruises, all the arrows sticking out of them. Um, uh, and you know they know that journey. So how do they get on the board? Um, and, and that's the challenge is that the uh, CIO is still in many organizations looked at, uh, you know, as the as the infrastructure guy uh, or gal. And so um, we, at the Tuck uh, CIO Roundtable, which uh, happens four times a year, I, and I and I am uh, often invited to to be the supporting uh, subject matter expert. Uh, the, the, that topic comes up. Um, you have to deeply understand both the business and the top five business priorities of the organization. And you have to earn yourself uh, a, a right at the table by, by delving into the, those topics uh, and then inviting yourself to the table. You can't, it's not sufficient. I mean, I, I just wrote a, a post, easy to find, called uh, the CIO must lead business strategy now. It's, it's all technology. If you don't have the CIO up there, the board developing business strategy, you're, it's just, you're never going to realize your digital transformation uh, dreams because you don't know the art of the possible. Uh, but the CIO has to invite themselves. You're not going to get invited, uh, and you get yourself invited by by leading the business, coming up with the best ideas on what's next for the organization using technology, of course, but also how does that grow and 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 live at the core of the business. Speaking of CIO invitations, congratulations again. Recently, you were ranked number two in the world in terms of CIO influence. How does the CIO reach out to you? Like, <laughs> do they do they send you a DM on Twitter? Do they send like how do I'm a CIO of a startup or a Fortune 100 company. How did they get connected to Dio? I get LinkedIn. a lot of CIO invites on LinkedIn. Just that's a, that's the best way uh, to connect with me. Uh, but I, ha I open up my DMs on Twitter to anybody. It's a great. I sometimes get it that way, and my email is easy to find online. So all, all channels. I listen on all channels. And when, how do you filter? Okay, so you got 10 CIOs coming at you, and they all want your time. What, what's the criteria that you use in terms of who you're going to connect with? Do you do you search their bio to see, is this a CIO that has a proven track record of transformation? So I'm going to actually make some progress working with them or like, you know, how do you, how do you filter these requests? Well, I, I really like to see uh, the CIOs that get it. And, uh, you know, we talked about the shift from leadership to influence, right? Because every, IT is in everything now. It's, and 
half of IT is no longer under the CIO anymore. It's under the CMO, the chief digital officer, whatever. The only way to drive a cohesive vision is to influence, to have the best ideas. So I want to see some evidence that they're sharers, that they're coalition and community builders, that they're out there. Uh, they're not locked up in their office, um, you know, uh, working on a, on a budget and, and you have no idea what's going on with them. I want, you know, sharers and contributors and participators uh, who are influencers. So I look for that. And if I can't find anything that they're doing out there, then I, I'm a little skeptical, right? So. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. That's exactly. But honestly, that's all. Uh, I know Ray and I get a lot of requests in terms of engaging, guiding, consulting, speaking. And I've got to tell you, that's exactly what I do. If I don't find a, set, a spirit of generosity and, 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 and wisdom that's shared, I'm somewhat reluctant to, uh, to, to collaborate because my goal is to learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and right. so I, I want that reciprocity. We well, have nothing present. to engage with, right? You have nothing to respond right. to or, you know, there's no seed there, right? So it's just right. very difficult. It is tough. Well, we're here with Diane Hinchcliffe, VP and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, best-selling author, the number two follower for CIOs around the world, and of course, uh, a good friend of the show and co-host once in a while. So thanks for being on our 200th episode. Absolutely. You, Great pleasure. Congrats again. Thank you, sir. You're terrific. All right. We'll see you in the green room. Wow. 200, Vala. What do we do? Uh, I, <laughs> uh, if, if we were in person, I'd be uh, giving you a, a hug and a, and a, and a high five. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been an amazing, uh, I tell you, my friend, it's been an amazing ride. Uh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the last four years. It's clearly my favorite time of the week is, is spending time with you and our guests. And you and I know it's nothing to do with you and I. It's, I mean, just like today, <laughs> you know, uh, three extraordinary people, as Steve Jobs said, putting a dent in the universe, uh, who are volunteering their time to spend a Friday afternoon with us. And so uh, we're so lucky. And um, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, super thankful. Oh, wow. Episode 201. Wow. <laughs> yeah, episode, this episode. one is pretty cool. So. Yeah, we have uh, one of our favorite guests. In fact, she was guest number one on Disrupt TV. So 612 interviews. She was number one. Whitney Johnson, uh, C-suite advisor, uh, dis disruption theorist, uh, keynote speaker, former partner of well, Clay Christensen with Rosa Park Ventures. She's a thinker's 50, so one of the top management thinking influencers in the world will be our guest. Uh, James Taylor, CEO of Decision Management Solutions. And then we have uh, perhaps a mentor to both of us, uh, mentors to both of us, Paul Greenberg, founder, managing principal of 56 Group and Brent Leary, partner, CRM Essentials. I don't know how we're gonna pack this into an hour, Ray, but we, have, we might actually give you a warning for next week. You might go beyond an hour because all four guests and are I, and extraordinary. I think, and I think we're on the CRM Players show like the uh, like on Thursday as well. So we're doing a show promotion if that's something. Yeah. Like that. I got to get the time, though. I'm not sure what time. Yeah, yeah that's, we know we're going to be with, uh, with Brent and Paul. And Paul is, uh, you know, he's the godfather of CRM, best-selling book CRM. I think fifth edition taught at set, uh, 40 universities. Uh, translated into 70 languages, so CRM at the speed of light. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, that's episode 201. Uh, we look wow. forward to having you here next week. Greg, closing remarks, please, for episode 200. <laughs> thank you for following. We thank our audience. We thank all the folks that have been on the show for sharing uh, in our larger community. It's been amazing to have you all here. Uh, and if you want to be on the show, let us know. 
Um, you can follow us here on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show, Vala at V A L A A F S H A R, myself at R W A N G Zero, and more importantly, catch us on iTunes on podcasts, catch us on the live stream Periscope, and of course, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. See you at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks, everyone.